This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea your host for today's interview with Mike Palmquist, professor of English with a focus on rhetoric and composition, and also university distinguished teaching scholar. He is co-author, together with Barbara Walraff, former senior editor of the Atlantic Monthly, of the books Joining the Conversation, A Guide and Handbook for Writers, 4th edition, and In Conversation, a writer's guidebook, 2nd edition, both published by Bedford St. Martins. Rhetoric. The word and the act, rhetoric, go back to ancient Greece. Rhetoric is public speaking, is holding a speech in a court of law. Rhetoric is words turned to purpose. The user of rhetoric turns words to purpose because the user of rhetoric, the rhetorician, finds themselves before an audience, definitely not the kind of situation in which we humans care to appear very dumb. Purpose is the motor of the rhetorician's word-making. The rhetorician wants to use the opportunity of having the attention of listeners in order to connect with them, in order to inform them, in order to convince them, in order to propose to them a course of action, namely, the action the rhetorician considers to be the best. Rhetoric seizes an opportunity to communicate and makes the opportunity a purpose. Genre This word is, to the English language anyway, much, much younger than rhetoric. Genre comes from the French, in the literal meaning of type, kind, variety. Genre, perhaps because of its francophonics, enjoys wide use in the study of literature and the arts. A genre is a category, an analytical tool which the critic employs to bring order into the sheer possibility of creative work. Without the category's lyrical poem, Bildungsroman, discussion play, flash fiction, without such categories as these, any attempt at interpretation or evaluation might well be overwhelmed by all that the work can be. But genre is a tool not just employed by the critics of literature and the arts. Genre is also a palette, 
a template, a design, used by the fashioners themselves of creative works. And this has long been so, long, long before the English language even had this sophisticated French word to denote the act of putting into the most suitable form one's own creative purpose. And there we have that word again, purpose. Purpose lays the foundations for rhetoric. Purpose is the very reason that genres exist. Both rhetoric and genre have much, very, very much indeed, to offer to the writer who wants to train readers' eyes to the words in the line, or, more traditionally, to the speaker who wants words of the air to fill the listener's ears. Because the way to the mind is through the ears and the eyes. The way that discourse enters our thinking is through the spoken language we address to our interlocutors and through the written language we address to our fellow readers. Text and talk have this way of bringing together minds, just as does conversation. Because what is conversation? What is real conversation where people listen and say, where people have purposes and respect purposes, where people have given consideration to the topic and also give consideration to the consideration given by others to the topic? What is this conversation if not a joining of minds, a situation that enables people to pursue what they want or need to pursue, a situation that always excludes or denies some possibilities while affording enough others? Genre, rhetoric, conversation, the three combine to make the best sort of communication there is, the communication that comes off. And precisely this communication is the aim of two essential books by the authors, educators, and editors, Mike Palmquist and Barbara Walraff, the handbook joining the conversation and the guide in conversation. Young writers just beginning new sorts of writing, as well as experienced writers now beginning wholly new projects, will find much in these two books to spark their interest in the act of communicating by text, and much again in these two books to help them recognize their communication via text as their own act. Writers make choices, achieve aims, communicate, converse. So let's begin today's episode. Mike Palmquist joining the conversation in the conversation. Mike, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you very much, and thanks for inviting, uh, for inviting me to join the conversation. It sounds great. Very good. This, this will be our uh, leitmotif today, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, These textbooks will, uh, quite often, I believe, be the textbooks of writers in transition from high school to college. These will be the textbooks, in that case, of young people who will have done their share of writing through their senior years, but who now, no matter what their engagement was up until that point, they'll recognize at college that there's something new going on. There's something new that's being asked of them. There's something new that they're being asked to produce. And... I guess what I'd like to ask then to start off our conversation here is what in your view as an educator and also an author to this demographic, what in your view is the new thing that young writers are doing in college? Well, I think the, the, the newest thing they're doing is they're starting to think about themselves as actual contributors to an ongoing conversation within a discipline or within a profession or within civic life. And that's a big move for them. They, in high school, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because some high schools, like my daughter's and my son's high school, they do a really good job of preparing writers for college. But in general, what you see is that they come in with a real focus on what does the teacher want? What does this 
document need to look like. I know how to write an essay. I know how to write criticism. I know how to write a reflection, but it's never really foremost in their minds that they're actually entering into a, a writing situation, a rhetorical situation that in, that requires them to think about who am I writing to? What is my purpose? You know, what are the contexts that will shape the writing that's going on here? What kind of sources are already in play? What kind of genres will I be using? They're not thinking that way necessarily as a group. And, and while I'll say that there are plenty of students that come in with, with a, a pretty good understanding of this, they often, the majority don't have it. And so as educators, I think in first year writing, we tend to focus a great deal on how do you really understand this more complex communication situation uh, and more complex in a sense that it's more complex than what you've faced in high school typically. So that's one of the challenges we face. And I think that um, students often just want to say, what do I need to get done? And they don't they, they focus on the immediate requirements of an assignment without thinking to the larger purpose of actual communication with other people. And so our challenge is how do we get them to think about that larger context? How do we get them to think rhetorically? It, what I often think is that when you're in college and still an undergraduate anyway, even some people, though, once they've uh, moved on to graduate studies, you're really in an entire transition because I mean, as, as, as good as some high schools can be, and you make a very good point there, they're still, let's say the, they're still school, right? You're at school as an institution and you, you know, your place, so to speak. Um, whereas in university or at any kind of college, you know, you're heading somewhere. You're not heading anymore to school, right? You're, you're, you're going on to an occupation of sorts and, and really, from what I'm hearing from you right now is that is what the composition instructors need to be preparing these people for, for real occupational, real world sorts of writing. Well, that's right. The, the whole idea, when you go to graduate school in particular, you're suddenly inundated with all this new information about a particular area. I mean, it might be geophysics, it might be rhetoric and composition, it might be history, whatever it is. You suddenly find out that all these people have been writing to each other and interacting with each other in various ways. And they're talking about key issues They're And they're, they're looking at these issues in a particular way that's very specifically related to how that discipline understands the world. And so, I, I mean, I recall spending more than a semester, maybe into my second semester, just trying to figure out what all these people were talking about. And when I work with grad students now, they're going through that same process. It's like they're thinking about things and every day they're, being, they're encountering new ideas, new ways of looking at things, and they're trying to put it all together. I think that's really true as well for our undergrads. And they come into the university, uh, you know, and Bartholomew, for example, talks about inventing the university, this process of figuring out what's going on, how, where do I fit, how do I, how do I operate in this new context. So whether it's graduate school or undergraduate, these points of transition are really important, and the students end up just trying to make sense of things. And I think that's great. Um, I, I, I'm always intrigued by how students grow. You know, whether it's in the course of a first year composition course or whether it's the first semester of graduate school, how they 
start putting things together. So, so I think that's really important, that whole notion of transition and, and trying to understand what people are talking about and how they talk about it. And that, that ties into that whole notion of conversation. And really, scholarship at the level of research, when new knowledge is being created in, inside of a discipline, really, it's, it's occurring in the written form, isn't it? I mean, that's where so much of the bulk of it is. We, we, we do think of lectures. We do think of, of course, discussion groups. And all of these things have their place. But when something is going to be accepted or put into the community of scholars or scientists and and be proven, if you like, then it's going to happen in writing. Do you think that this fact, this basic, almost material fact of of research in the university has something to do with the importance of a book like yours, the first year writing courses, the writing centers that we have, and so on? Um, I think so. I mean, I'd like to think, to think so, certainly. <laughs> from, from my perspective, the, the People are sharing ideas. They're trying to build on what each other have said. They're trying to, sometimes they're competing with each other. They're saying, well, I'm not sure you've got the right approach. You know, I've got a, a good friend from college who's a, a virologist right now. And he talks about how there are sort of these conflicts or maybe these debates about what's the appropriate methodology for carrying out particular investigations. It's fascinating. You know, so it's not just, oh, look, we found something new. It's how does this fit into what we've done in the past? How does this work? So yes, I think that when you're talking about how these debates get carried out or how you try to add new ideas to an ongoing conversation, it's usually completed or carried out through various types of documents. And I think we need to expand the notion from you know written articles and books and things like that to even something as simple as social media. Well, that's not simple, is it? But social media, these videos that are out there, different types of documents that they've created to, especially in the STEM disciplines, to, to get information out there quickly and help move that conversation forward, especially during really trying times, like, like the middle of a pandemic. You don't want to wait nine months for peer review in order to get your article out. Sometimes you want to share the information quickly so other people can start investigating it as well and do the important replication work that needs to be done. What I find interesting, one of the words that came up a few times in, in your answer there was the word of a problem. And this huh. is perhaps the difference uh, might be, if we can put our finger on it, <laughs> um, between, say, the school level and the university level, already the research level. I mean, graduate students and even upper level undergrads are doing uh, proper research already, um, that you see that knowledge is not an answer, it's a problem. Right. I mean, you're not answer finding, you're problem solving, which is, I think, uh, I, I would argue anyway, sort of a crucial shift in your perspective. Oh, it, it really is. I mean, you can go back to Dewey with this notion of felt difficulty. And, you know, I encountered that through Richard Young while I was in graduate school. It was a, it was a fundamentally important concept to me is that we're really looking at what are the issues we're facing? What are the challenges we're facing? And you can think of those as problems, either a lack of knowledge or there are barriers to something or there are consequences to particular situations or people are trying to accomplish this, but that happens. This whole idea of how do we get from where we're at to a better place comes down to really advancing our knowledge and thinking carefully about uh, the issues we're facing. So I've found problem 
problem definition in particular and problem solutions to be a really critical part of the thinking process that students need to take on and start realizing that, no, it's just not me going in there and saying, this is what we know about global warming. It's more about what are the approaches that people have taken to addressing climate change? What what are the trade-offs and some of the solutions that they've put forward? Can we afford this? Can we do this? How can we make this happen? And defining those problems in particular ways and then offering solutions seems to be a, fun, a fundamental part of how we deal with these complex issues that are facing us. And that does seem then, to get back to my point about uh, text and the role that text has and, and scholarship, that does seem to be something particular about text that really affords this sort of exploration of issues and attempts at solving problems, doesn't there? I mean, it would seem that for all the advances that can come through discussion, for the necessity of talk to advancing ideas, I mean, that's why universities are gatherings of people on a campus, whatever shape that campus might take. I mean, these these people studying these problems need to get close together. Um, And yet, it is in the text work, if I might say so, that the, let's say the complexities really first get uncovered and explored, isn't it? Well, I think you're right. I mean, people can be talking to each other at a conference or they can be interacting on Zoom or Teams or whatever they're using, and they can have great conversations. And And those conversations might be recorded, but to make them accessible and to really formalize the kind of thinking that you're working on, we tend to share documents. And what's been fascinating to me, I mean, I, I used to be a professional writer uh, working in the Twin Cities in, in Minnesota. And working for companies like 3M and things like that, I learned a particular set of documents. And they were always linear. They're always straightforward. The documents we work with today tend to still be linear, but they're branching documents. So you might you might create, for example, a journal article, but then link to your data set or link to other to related sources. Or you might embed a video or you might do all the rest of this. But we still have these documents, even if they're using non-textual elements or they're using links or things like that. And, and those are the records of our conversations. Those are the records of the ideas that we're, we're going back and forth on. And when you sit down to, to really examine an issue... You go see what's been written about it. You go see what, what what you can find in terms of videos out there. Lots of linear documents in various ways. And I, I think that's, you're right. That's, that's how we end up communicating with each other and, and documenting our conversations. You make clear in the preface to the book, and you, and you make clear so far also in, in, in what you say, that uh, scholarship, the research, philosophy, uh, the theory, all of these things are informing what it is that you do when you teach writing, when you think about writing. And it's quite evident in the book. In fact, uh, I'm thinking particularly now of, of joining the conversation as a textbook that could really carry a seminar. It uh, it's quite unique. Uh, one thing I would just tell listeners is it's a joy to read. And uh, I'm somebody who's thought a long time about writing, and I, I was finding things in there that were well-expressed and also um, new to me, at least in that form, for sure. Um, so I, I guess I'd like to ask you uh, how it is that you came then around to, to write this textbook. Well, this textbook is actually kind of a product of a lot of uh, graduate school work and then shifting into becoming a, a professor and things like that. Uh, but but I'll, I'll say that when I was in graduate school, I, I had the opportunity to work with Dave Coffer, Cheryl Geisler, and Chris Neuwirth, and they had published a textbook called Arguing from Sources. 
And I had come to graduate school. Uh, my wife had wanted to go to grad school. I really hadn't thought about it. And I realized that the school she wanted to go to, which is Carnegie Mellon, um, had a rhetoric program. And I thought, oh, yeah, that'll be great. I, I'd love classical rhetoric. I'd love the Phaedrus. I'd love, you know, reading about the sophists and things like that. It was it was fascinating. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll just become a professor. And so I jumped into this program without a master's degree, without any real understanding of what graduate school would involve down to the point where they said I was going to be a GTA. And I thought, I'll be a graduate teaching assistant. I'll be assisting, assisting a professor. And I found out shortly before I was actually going to start my classes that I was actually going to be the instructor of record. So I went into this. I was the only person in the classroom. It was not an assistantship. It was very odd to me. So I was pretty clueless. And I ended up working with Dave Coffer eventually. And, uh, and he and Chris Newirth in particular, they were both at Carnegie Mellon at the time. Cheryl Geisler had moved on. Um, they started having me teach from their textbook, which is called Arguing from Sources. And they had done a study of how individual, of how, how the differences between people who are new to a discipline, they looked at philosophy, how those new students would, would, would wrestle with philosophical ideas and, and, and write about it. And then they studied expert philosophers, people who were well advanced in their careers. And they found these differences and they thought, oh, we'll just help them move, start adopting some of the practices of these more experienced writers. And that kind of got me thinking about all this stuff. They were really building on a notion of what Kenneth Burke was talking about with uh, essentially his notion of the parlor where people come in and start working with each other. And I ended up doing my I ended up doing my dissertation studying two different approaches. One was using uh, the book Arguing from Sources, and the other was using a more traditional approach. It was Brenda Spatt's book. It was a great book, but it was a different kind of way of looking at writing. And uh, I studied that, and I saw that when we did a writing about writing approach in, in using the Arguing from Sources uh, textbook, we, we, we digitized, I remember we digitized all these journal articles that were uh, relevant to writing, technical writing, professional writing, uh, any kind of writing, really. And, uh, and the students started talking to each other about this stuff, and they started engaging with these ideas. They started arguing with each other about things that, you know, typically you wouldn't even be thinking about until graduate school. And I thought it was fascinating. And so this whole idea of conversation kind of came out of that. And when I became a, a and I'll say that the students in that class that were focusing on the writing about writing approach, they seemed to engage more deeply in the discussion. And it looked like they were like citing people in meaningful ways and they were putting out new ideas. Um, so <clears throat> when I got to, 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 to Colorado State University, I brought some of those ideas with me. And for several years, we talked about different approaches. And I kept refining it down to this idea of what are students really doing? And that became kind of... Uh, a key part of our curriculum. Eventually, I became in charge of the writing program there and and ended up uh, directing it and developing the curriculum for it. That, that kind of positioned me to do some of this work later on that led to the textbooks. But I'll stop for a second because I think I, I think you could probably refocus me. <laughs> you, you, well, you've got us. You've got us probably about halfway to the textbook, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but you've certainly given us plenty of oh, I mean, uh, plenty of the the background thinking to it, and also the experience that led to it. What 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 really caught my attention? I did um, an interview um, with um, I'm trying to remember the names Rachel 
Burma and unfortunately someone else whose name I'm missing. The Teaching Archive was their book, though, oh. and, and and a fantastic book. Um, I can only recommend uh, listeners go to uh, my interview there. And what the what the premise of the book was, what what the book really just proves by going into the archives is how research by some of the greatest literary scholars was informed by the classrooms that they were in. And I mean, mm-hmm. what you seem to be telling me is. Uh, <laughs> Another story of the same of the same vein, and 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 the other thing that comes out so clearly in the book is um, when greats like T. S. Eliot or or um, who was the other one there? Uh, well, and the name escapes me again. But in any case, when they brought proper research into the classroom and said, okay, let's go into uh, the British Museum ourselves now and look at manuscripts. Uh, let's, let's, let's write criticism ourselves right now about the novels that are being published this week and so on, that the students were entirely there and engaging in mm-hmm. the work. So that, that, that seems also to, <laughs> to ring true with what you're telling me. Well, it certainly does. I mean, what what I found really interesting was, you know, I, I I came into teaching writing without the kind of experience that a lot of my colleagues in graduate school had come in with in a, in a doctoral program because I had a bachelor of arts and I'd been writing professionally, but I really wasn't hadn't been doing a lot of teaching. The, the most teaching I'd actually been doing was serving as a cross country and track coach for five years before before I went to grad school. Um, and so I remember just really thinking about these issues about look at how effectively these students are grappling with ideas when you treat them as people who are entering a discipline or, and these are engineering students, they, they probably couldn't have cared really deeply about, about the, uh, the, the issues we were raising, but because of the class, they started thinking about them. And pretty soon they're actually starting to say, what, why don't we do this? How, why don't we do that? This is, we could do this better. And it was like, they were really thinking about the ideas. So I think that writing about writing approach that we took in, uh, it was a fall of 88 actually worked out so well. And it just deeply influenced the way I thought about how to teach writing. And so when I got to Colorado state university, again, it, it started, we start, I started, you know, sharing those ideas and people found them, my colleagues found them useful. And I remember at one point, the folks from uh, Bedford St. Martin started to visit me. I think I had been talking with one of their sales reps and he, he, he had told them that maybe I was someone they wanted to talk to. And that, that was flattering. You know, this person is in there, but I had been told in graduate school, you know, so they'd send an, I thought they'd send an acquisition editor. It actually turned out to be Joan Feinberg, who was one of the founders of Bedford St. Martin's. <laughs> I think she was a founding editor. It was pretty cool. Um, and we ended up having several conversations, and I kept telling her, there's no way I'd write a textbook. It's not, I was told in graduate school I should never write a textbook. I should always focus on my scholarly work and, and make my contribution in that way. And they sort of roped me in. They sort of said, well, well, why don't you take a look at our website? Well, you know, you can, you can consult on our website. Or why don't you just, you know, give us some feedback on this particular book that we're writing? And so I did that kind of stuff. And then they snuck in there and they came up with this idea that I could become the author of a piece of software that was very, very cool. It was called uh, Hyperfolio Research Assistant. And the software allowed you to take any digital object, select it on your computer screen, and drop it into a collection icon 
which essentially was a database that you'd just pull things into. And then you could manipulate them. We could, we could put them on a screen and show how these three sources align with each other and they're in opposition to these, or this sequence of events occurs and here are the sources that are relevant to it. And you could put in the citations for those sources. You could add notes, you could evaluate them. And I loved it. And I, I remember they flew me out to New York City, which was kind of exciting for me. I'm a kid from Northern Minnesota, ultimately. And I'm going, this is just fun. And then they said, well, we're glad you like it. And we need a textbook to go along with this work. And I said, oh, so <laughs> they kind of they kind of got me. And I thought, well, I want to keep working with the software. I better write the textbook. And so I wrote a book called uh, The Bedford Researcher. And that was kind of the beginning of trying to articulate the thinking that I had about, A, how to write a textbook and B, you know, how to how to really put together all these ideas I'd been working with uh, since the 1980s, uh, you know, in graduate school and then and, and as a, a beginning professor at Colorado State. So the slick people in New York, huh? They took <laughs> they took <laughs> <they> in. <laughs> what, I, what I find uh, so interesting in that is the um, stepping back a few uh, paces in, in the story is the advice from your uh you know your your graduate school, right? Never write a textbook. Make your contribution to to the field and your research, which in itself is is kind of indicative of a certain philosophy as to you know what counts um, mm -hmm. and what doesn't. Uh, you know the teaching is second to the research, and and what I find works so fantastic in, in in joining the conversation and in conversation is is one of the things that you mentioned in the preface: the fact that your scholarship. Uh, in writing or the scholarship generally in the field of writing has been something that you've always been keen to bring into your classroom. It made me even think of uh, Ken Highland, uh, who wrote uh, second language writing amongst <laughs> thousands of other articles. Yes. Um, in, his, in his ninth and final chapter, um, he titles it Researching Writing and Writers as a Second Language Teacher. So mm -hmm. He sees research as, you know, research practice as being part of the teaching practice. And my feeling with that, and and he says much the same, is why not? I mean, every discipline brings to their undergraduates the research and the studies that are, you know, the founding documents of their uh, fields and also the most recent documents. Uh, I mean, it's time that composition be also recognized in exactly that same uh, size, right? Mm -hmm. And I agree, that's absolutely the right way to go. Uh, I think when they were telling me that, what they were saying essentially was, make sure you've got a solid scholarly program put together before you start turning towards things like textbooks. And I, I, they had had the experience, their textbook had not done that well. Um, it had gone through one edition. I don't know if it went into a second. And and I think they said, my God, we put so much work into this. What you don't want to do when you're a brand new beginning professor is to start focusing on things like textbooks. Figure out who you are as a scholar and then go from there. And I think that process of figuring out who I was as a scholar really played a huge role in the kind of writing that I did. And equally so, I think that the kind of experience that I had as a professional writer before I went to graduate school played a huge role in that because it really defines kind of the relationship you want to have with your with your readers and in this case it's you know these student writers that are coming in there um i think that that whole process for me was interesting and i'll say the folks at at bedford st martin's really were amazing in terms of working with new authors they had a process that was really distinct from a lot of the folks uh in in, in with other publishers 
they basically took you in. They started apprenticing you. They gave you feedback. I think I went through multiple drafts, you know, getting feedback along the way, kind of refining this approach. And and they just give you so much support. So that was a real hallmark of their approach. And one of the reasons I think they've been successful with their books, because if they had just asked me to write a textbook at the beginning, it probably would have been a miserable failure. Uh, and instead, they really allowed me to think through these ideas and processes that I thought were super important. And to get to the point where where you're really finding a way to share it with students in a way that's grounded in terms of the scholarship that we've been doing, in terms of the things that I'd learned as a teacher in the classroom over those years. And so they did a, they did a wonderful job of helping me grow as a writer. That shows in the book um, because it it is, as I mentioned already, is something that it's... It, it's also just, I mean, as a textbook, it clearly is going to work, but I mean, it's also, it has worked. Um, but it's also just something that's worth reading. You know, it's fun. <laughs> and, it, and it brings, and it brings really to the point, it selects the texts that it wants to analyze, um, you know, su- suggests the kind of projects that, uh, you know, really so certainly engage thinking, you know, even uh, as I say, somebody who's, you know, not an undergraduate anymore. <laughs> I really like that. Um, I, and, and in fact, let's 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 perhaps uh, turn a bit to some of the content in the book um, so mm-hmm. that people can uh, I'm thinking now of uh, joining the conversation uh, so that people can get uh, sort of an understanding of where it picks up, uh, you know, a first year writer who mm-hmm. uh, is is at college now and is just either decided on their major or thinking of changing their major. <laughs> and they're <laughs> confronted and they're confronted now with this this writing course. And you meet them with um, what we've been talking about so far, this idea of a conversation. Um, could you and genre, which I mentioned also uh, yeah. earlier in, in my intro, could you kind of maybe give us a introduction to your introduction? Sure. I mean, the, the idea behind the conversation metaphor is a really simple one. The reason that it works for me as a teacher, and I've, you know, I go around the country and I give workshops on this and I, I do it on Zoom more recently, but teachers find this to work pretty well and, and, and they like it. The basic idea is that students already know a fair amount about rhetorical situations. And I change, I use the word writing situation to make it more accessible to students. But ultimately what I'm talking about is that sort of relationship between writers and readers and, and the context that, that shape those interactions. And what's inter- what's always been interesting to me is that students think, oh my God, college writing, it's completely different from everything I've ever done in my life. And I sit there and say, no, nah, not really. Uh, we start out with, well, you guys have been involved in conversations, and I'll ask them things like, what, what, what works? How does the conversation usually play out? And then I say, what happens when conversations don't go well? And they'll talk about things. They'll sometimes come up and do like uh, role playing in front of the class. One of the most fascinating things I ever saw was that when someone came into a conversation and violated conversational norms, you know, not respecting what other people had said and things like that, they literally would physically exclude this person from the circle so that pretty soon this person's like on the outside and everybody's back is turned to them. I thought that was amazing. So these students have a really fairly sophisticated understanding of rhetoric, but it's all based in conversation. You know, you listen to people, you respect what they say, you, 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 you reference what they've said, you know, you, you cite your sources, essentially. You don't simply repeat what other people have said. You add to the conversation and move it forward. It might not be a brilliant observation, but it does move it forward. And so that allows you to talk about things like how new do you need to be? I think students come into the classroom with a tremendous amount of rhetorical savvy 
they know a bit about genre and you know largely through the fact that sometimes they decide i'm going to use I'm going to tweet this, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use Instagram, or I'm going to use Snapchat, or I'm going to create a video, or I'm, well, I have to write an academic document, so I'm going to use an essay form or something like that. You know, they they really have an awareness that the way you can interact with other people has allows you to use different or make choices about what ultimately they understand as genre. They might not know the word; they probably don't know the word but they understand the concept of different types of documents. So you move from this understanding of, you build on their understanding of kind of rhetorical situation, even though they don't necessarily know that term. And then you move from that into, well, how do you make your contribution to the conversation? What the, the old, what I think about it is the old rhetorical canon of delivery, which for many years, rhetoric and composition didn't really address. You know, we tend to think about delivery as all about how you stand in front of a group and talk. I, te- I think, and, I, and certainly the field has moved in this direction over the years. But when I first started writing these textbooks, I, I thought delivery is really critical. How do you how do you interact with your with your readers? How do you how do you how do you decide what kind of form you're going to use? And so the genre stuff just ties into all these things students already know when they come into the classroom, and that that has worked really well for me. And uh, in the classroom, what what are some of the things that you find? Students are asking about most because I'm I'm imagining and and, and just from your picture of <laughs> the way people are actually excluding other people from a conversation. I mean, I couldn't imagine a better image for somebody who has done three years of research and just not really actually found the the, the string of the conversation in their discipline when their article doesn't get published or their book doesn't get published. But mm-hmm. to come back to my question, um, clearly you're going to be raising a lot of curiosity. And um, I wonder how much um, of your answers try to relate back to, as you've just made clear, their own experiences. And how much do you want to move them actually in the direction of these are the technical terms, this is the scholarship, these are the findings? Uh, where mm-hmm. do you find a balance there between those two ends? I, I think a lot of times in terms of bringing in the scholarship, I use it as, a, as an example. For example, I might talk about the fact that uh, when, and this is a very old study, and I've, I've actually forgotten the name of the person who did it, which is foolish on my part, but you take professional writers, people who have made a living as writers, and you give them highly complex technical information, and you ask them to write about it. They, they, they focus so much on the on the on the on the knowledge and the interrelations among the concepts that they're dealing with, that some of their low, lower level writing uh, processes kind of fall apart and they start making grammatical errors. They start doing things that they would never do because they're professional writers and helping students understand that a lot of the struggles they'll have as writers is related to the complexity of the ideas that they're taking in and trying to make sense of really helps. So I'll, I'll cite sources like that. I'll bring in things and say, well, we know this is true. We know that when people read their uh, documents out loud, that they'll it'll it'll read perfectly even though there are mistakes in there uh they might have made an error but they have a mental model of what they've written so they can they can read it perfectly 
And that means you probably should get feedback on your drafts because you're not going to be able to see things that you've been working on. So I'll bring in that kind of research and and use it. But it's always in the context of building on their previous knowledge, their understanding of conversations and starting to link it in. So as you start to work with new ideas, you have to think about it, you have to reflect on it, you have to think critically about these things. And then, you know, you'll you'll run through periods of time where you're actually not writing that well. And I'll do things like... Uh, in the last two semesters that I taught writing last year, spring and fall, and I'm going to teach it again this coming spring. I've noticed that students who learn the most often write the least well because they're they're trying to integrate all of these new ideas and all of these new processes down the road. They're going to have a huge leap forward as they start to integrate this, and they'll end up being better writers. But sometimes when you're grading people at the end of the semester, you'll find that the people that have learned the most and really are going to make the most progress as writers are not writing as well as you'd hope because they haven't integrated that knowledge yet. So those kinds of things are, are really important to me, trying to help them build on their previous prior knowledge, making connections to it in ways that make sense so they can advance what they're doing and recognizing as you go along that they're going to struggle. So that's been that's been a key part of what I've been doing. And I, I just think you really have to think carefully about what they're bringing to the classroom and how you want to move them forward. So bringing in research, bringing in past experiences, bringing in some of my own studies, those are incredibly helpful because they help students contextualize things and understand that a lot of the challenges they're facing uh, are normal and that this kind of stuff just happens all the time. That idea that writing needs to catch up with knowledge and that, as you, as you so so eloquently put it, some of the best writers, some of the ones who are really going to have a huge repertoire at their disposal are the ones who perhaps through their college years are going to be writing mediocre, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe even worse. But, but that, 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 is, that is really one of those developmental processes, isn't it? That yes. all of us actually go through this idea that it's the piecing together of the bits of knowledge that will hinder good writing, and it's good writing that will only come together with a thoroughly pieced together bit, um, area of knowledge, but then knowledge has this way of slipping away from us, and problems arise, and, and so it goes on and goes on, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And, and it's this process. I mean, we see it. I, I was the director of our teaching and learning center for about eight years here, and uh, one of the things that really was so clear to me after looking at all the data and everything else, students learn, they 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 really kind of get to a point, they, they, they level up essentially. And then as they learn new knowledge, their performance declines. They actually get a little bit worse before they put it all together and then they level up a little bit higher. So it's this constant peaks and plateaus and rising up and sometimes declining and as, as this new knowledge is integrated, as these new skills are, are taken on and developed. So they really struggle, I think, in some ways. And it can be very frustrating for students. And, and just simply sharing that kind of knowledge with them is also very useful because then they say, okay, so this is likely what's going to happen. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting watching them. And there's a huge developmental process that's going on. You know, I mean, a lot of our students, they say that the, 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 the brain continues to grow until your late 20s. A lot of the students I'm working with are in their late teens or early 20s and so you know you just know there's so much growth that's going to occur over the next few years and it, it's really it's always fun to to see them kind of taking on a, a bit of expertise and starting to to work with it even when it might be not as well done as they'll do down the road what comes out so clear in in, in your teaching practice there and, and and your experience and the stories you tell is that 
it's probably misguided when people single out writing. And it might even be an explanation as to why writing and composition just really don't have um, a home at the university, say like uh, microbiology does or uh, chemical engineering or even history. <laughs> um, because what, what many people tend to do is sort of separate out the writers as the novice beginning writers, the somehow intermediate and then the expert writers. But to separate out a writer like that, sort of decoupling him or her from the area of knowledge that they happen to be in and their advancement in that area of knowledge is 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 so artificial that it's actually unhelpful, isn't it? It is. You tend to think, oh, writing, just learn how to put your sentences together, learn how to develop a nice paragraph, you know, learn the rules of grammar. And somehow that's going to transfer magically into another discipline. When in fact, the kinds of debate and discourse and discussion and reporting and inquiry that goes on in a particular uh, discipline is highly conditioned on the knowledge they share, on the things that they think are important, the conversations, in a sense, that are going on in that discipline. You really have to learn it. Otherwise, you'll just be talking about stuff and you don't quite know how to connect it to what everybody else is saying. So I think there's, we've been talking a lot in, in, in writing studies, composition and rhetoric, about the notion of transfer. And I, I first came across the notion of transfer when I was at Carnegie Mellon. The cognitive science department there is one of the, what was and still is one of the leaders in this area. Uh, they even had a Nobel Prize winner. Um, so Herb Simon, who was a key player in, in cognitive science for many years, they were really struggling with the idea that if you learn something in one area, can you just pick it up and move it to another area and be good at it? And what they found back then was that, no, it wasn't working. And now what we've started to do is to start thinking about, well, what are the skills you can learn as a writer that will help you become more successful as you move into a new area? This whole notion of transfer is really important. I've been teaching it in my class this semester. And one of the key issues I look at is that we tend to think about metacognition and reflection and these big picture issues that move us into understanding how discourse plays out in a particular discipline. But then I keep thinking, are we getting all the stuff we need to do? Because there are some things that you can learn as a writer that transfer pretty quickly and pretty easily, like how to search for information, how to how to organize documents, how to think about genres. So there are some things that that seem to be fairly common across a lot of disciplines. But it's always those distinctive conversations, those focuses, those specific types of interpretive interpretive frameworks, the kind of questions that you're asking that trip you up when you move into this new area. And I'll just give you a quick example. When I was a professional writer in the Twin Cities, I was really good at picking up new ideas and writing about it in a particular way. It was usually for a general audience. But as soon as I got to graduate school, I really struggled. All of a sudden, I went from being someone who was being paid to write to I have no idea what I'm doing in order to get an, this journal article uh, to a point where it would even be considered, let alone published. And so it was really difficult to understand, to, to really immerse myself in those conversations and start understanding what they were actually talking about. You know, now, of course, it's much easier to do that, but it really was quite a challenge. And I think our students see that all the time. They might learn how to be a good writer in first year writing class. They might learn how to be a good writer in maybe a sophomore level class that's asking them to do writing to learn activities or writing to engage activities. 
But when they move into their upper division courses and all of a sudden they're being asked to write, say, an environmental impact statement, which our students in our Warner College of Natural Resources do on a regular basis, like a 150 page <laughs> environmental impact statement, or they're going to write some sort of review of literature for a particular area, it, it gets really challenging for them. Yeah, and that's uh, that's just a switch that I had in mind when I was uh, looking through the textbooks because the textbooks are clearly picking up the freshmen sophomores as as far as I understood their application and they're laying though the groundwork so that this transfer that you talk about so that it is possible then later on for them to understand the environmental impact uh, report. Okay, so what are the adjustments that I myself need to make autonomously, mm-hmm. perhaps, without mm-hmm. necessarily having to go through all the trial and error that so many of us have gone through and entering into new genres? Um, what are some of the, let's say, teaching points that you bring into your classes? Or what does, say, joining the conversation bring in to raise that sort of awareness in a writer? I think the key thing is that you want students first to understand that meaningful writing takes place in context. So you've got a writing situation and you need to step back and sort of understand it. I mean, are you writing a progress report for a team that you've been involved in in an engineering firm? Are you are you writing up the results of, a, of, of lab work? Are you laying out a proposal for what the local school board should do in terms of dealing with the COVID-19 crisis? What is your purpose? Who are you talking to? What are you trying to accomplish? And what are the factors that are going to affect how you've how you've uh, how your message, as it were, is received. How are people going to map on what you're saying to to their own situation? I think that's the first thing for me is really getting that larger knowledge of the rhetorical situation and starting to activate it in ways where they say, "Oh, yeah, I've been in kind of situations like this before." Um, yeah, I remember I did this when I got in. I was having a difficulty with one of my friends, and I ended up doing saying this or doing that. How do you take that kind of practical knowledge that you bring into the classroom and start to translate it in ways that allows you to understand it more deeply and then begin to use it in these new situations you're encountering? So that's the first thing. Um, I also talk about the importance of sources and reading. You know, and it goes back to that conversation metaphor of you don't just throw out your ideas and say, hey, here's a new idea. And people go, yeah, we've been talking about that for 20 years. You, you, you actually have to position your own contributions to the conversation within, within the context of what's already been written, what's already been said, what's already knowledge within that particular area. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes you'll step back and say, hey, wait a minute, we, have, we, we need to look at this from another perspective. So I'll bring in the whole notion of newness. How do you advance a conversation? I'll bring in the whole notion of reflection. How do you figure out how you might, you know, what, what you want to say? How do you position yourself? And then how do you make something new? And I think that one of the best things about newness is helping them understand that you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winning uh, author in order to, to do something. Everybody wants to do something new, but sometimes newness is simply offering a new perspective or sharing your experiences or bringing in another uh, interpretive framework from another field. So maybe we've been looking at something, you know, from the point of view of critical theory. Well, what if you bring in a psychological theory that hadn't been applied? What if you bring in something from sociology? What if you bring in something from business, some sort of cost-benefit analysis or or something like that? And that can move the conversation forward in useful ways. So I think those things, understanding rhetorical situation, figuring out how to understand what other people are saying, 
figuring out the kinds of ways you can contribute to add something new to the conversation tend to be the biggest things that I focus on in my class. And then everything else falls under those larger, those larger concepts. Yeah, I see. Okay, no, that 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 all, that all uh, that's a package to prepare yourself for <laughs> for any kind of writing. I mean, what you say there about new knowledge, I find so fascinating because I I, I work uh, here in Heidelberg, as my listeners will know, working together with uh, um, scientists in the graduate school, and they and the whole field of STEM are uh, you know uh, interested in impact, novel. Um, transformative is the new sort of uh, key word that's out there, but it's all about this newness and what level of newness, which is you know precisely this larger uh, topic that you bring into your classes. And mm. what I find so interesting is it's that it's so easy to hype an idea that is better sold as one inch closer to a bigger answer. And that would actually be the proper contribution, whereas spinning the words around and making it seem something that it's not so that you get somewhere up in the abstract transformative <laughs> um, yeah. is um, it's, it's going to show it sometime. It's, you know, I think it was Chaucer who said mortal will out. Yeah. And in a sense, lying will out. <laughs> Hype <Yes>. will out. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I, I often bring in the notion of Kuhn's uh, normal science and then uh, paradigm shifts and students really, they, they never heard about it. You know, it's a new idea to them, but but they but they resonate with it pretty quickly. You know, a lot of the work that we do as scholars, as researchers, is uh, public policy analysts, for that matter, are is basically moving, building on previous ideas and moving them forward in some way, adding adding yet another data set, adding another set of perspectives. And then, but people, you know, get rewarded in a, in a, in a very public way if they figure out a new way of how to do something. Um, and I remember when I was a graduate student that they had always thought that um, superconductivity of electricity was possible only at temperatures approaching absolute zero. And somebody came up with this idea that you could actually do it using ceramics. And so they come up with they came up with these ceramic compounds that allowed them to do superconductivities at temperatures 100 degrees Kelvin higher. And the, the implications for that were per, fairly straightforward. The cost of cooling something down using liquid high, uh, helium, I think, was something like the equivalent of a, a bottle of Don Perignon for the same amount of, 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 of fluid, whereas to get it down to the temperatures where these ceramic compounds worked, it was like the cost of a, a bottle of beer. So the huge implications, and I remember, and I use this, I've used this example in my classes a lot. I remember that they were writing about this and one of the leaders in the field of superconductivity was asked, well, what does this mean? And, and how did we get here? And this, this, this expert says, I have no idea what this means. This is a fundamental reshaping of everything we've understood. We have to go back and really study this. In other words, we have to go back to normal science to figure out what's actually happening here. And and I, I think our students sometimes think, oh my God, I've got to do Nobel Prize winning newness or else I've got or our graduate students, they feel like they have to, you know, come up with some really profound new idea. I think profound new ideas come after being involved in a discipline for a long time. So I start talking about the notion of expertise and bringing that in. And so this, this, this whole larger framework that I work within ends up allowing me to bring in these other observations that in some ways I think are comforting to students and in other ways to give them the tools to understand how they can develop as writers and what they might expect down the road as they work through this process. 
I think the other framework that you offer them is the conversation itself. Um, if you follow, you know, the metaphor down to its last details, when does the conversation end in a sense, right? If you think of the conversation as going on between uh, people who are familiar with the topic or familiar with each other, in other words, they want to speak to each other, you've used the word earlier, ongoing. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't, uh, of course, one episode of the conversation may be just this hour or two, and then it gets picked up tomorrow and the next day. The, these paradigm shifts, these Nobel Prize winning moments are, in a sense, literally the end of that conversation. And I mean, science that doesn't talk, scholarship that has no problems, it doesn't exist, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. And, you know, the end of that conversation becomes the beginning of another one. Um, we end up, uh, there are things that are, that are settled. You know, we, we aren't really debating uh, some social issues that were current in the 1950s anymore. There are certain things that we've kind of moved on beyond. We, we don't worry about them in quite the same way that we did back then. And and what one of the things I talk about is if you're looking for a conversation to join, you don't want to pick up something where nobody's writing about it and nobody's disagreeing. You know, you want to deal with issues. You want to move something forward. And an issue is something, a, a point of debate or discussion or interest. You know, sometimes it's, I just want to learn more about this. And that's a conversation people get involved in. And at other times it's like, I couldn't disagree with you more. We, you know, let's talk about this maybe. You know, I think some of the polarization we see in society, at least in the United States right now, is highly problematic because people aren't talking to each other. And if we can figure out a way to help our students understand that that's a key part of civic life is actually engaging in discussions with other people and listening to what they have to say. I think if we don't do that, we're in trouble. And, and hopefully focusing on this kind of interaction will help people recognize that maybe there are ways we can get together and talk to each other again. I would like to just pick up a few of the features of the book, uh, again, to give listeners a, let's say, somewhat of a picture of what uh, what it has to offer. Uh, one of the sections which um, speaks to one of my major interests and and, and is handled uh, brilliantly is, is the section called Working Together, where peer review, for instance, oh, comes into focus. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you could share with us also in particular, because this is a major interest in the book, um, in particular in relation to IT resources for doing reviewing and collaborating. Oh, yeah, this is really a lot of fun. I mean, uh, we've we, rhetoric and composition or writing studies more generally as a field actually played a huge role in the development of modern word processors. This is kind of a weird thing. You have all these English professors out there talking about what do we do with all these tools that help us write? So there are things like how do you they, – they played a role in integrating images and graphics and things into documents and in tracking conversations and in uh, using hypertext, linking out and, and doing things like that. So track changes, comments, things like that that we kind of take for granted. Those are really interesting. And so uh, when I start talking about working together, we just keep getting more things that we can use to do that. It's been wonderful. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work out that well. Uh, you know, sometimes using Facebook to teach a class, some people tried that for a while. It doesn't quite seem to line up as well as some of the other tools we have. But I do like the idea of sitting down and saying, okay, how do we get together to talk about something? And what can we learn about those interactions? So for example, uh, we learned a long time ago through research that students will engage in conversations with each other 
And one student will say, well, I didn't understand this part of your introduction. And the student will then, ex the writer will then explain what was what was going on in that introduction and what, what they really wanted to say. And then when later, when they're revising, they don't think that they need to still work on that because they explained it and the person who's listening to it understood what they wanted to do. So some of the things that we look at in terms of technology is how do you track those kinds of of exchanges where where a reader says or a peer reviewer or a classmate says, I didn't quite get this. And how do you remember then that you can that you need to focus on that? So some of the tools we use allow us to make points. And then as a teacher, you sit there and say, okay, go through the transcript of this conversation that you had, take a look at the comments that they made on your draft and send me a revision plan. What do you want to work on? So a lot of the stuff that, that we do is is dealing with sort of these normal points of I'm not quite sure what the right word is, where, where people think, oh, I solved that problem because I explained it. <laughs> so the technology out there, whether it's video conferencing or it's uh, or it's some sort of commenting tool or it's uh, just any kind of, 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 of messaging tool, maybe a discussion forum in a, in a learning management system or maybe just email messages back and forth. How do you or comments on the on the draft itself? How do you get students to really work with that and understand it? So that's that's a key thing in terms of the technology. It's 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 really it's 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 not quite as simple as you might think because of human nature. And so sometimes people just think, well, I solved that problem. I don't need to worry about it anymore. But the text is still just as opaque as it was when they started. So it's 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 in a way offering a a technological record that then somehow confronts the writer so that mm -hmm. he or she knows okay there's there's work to be done still I mean essentially right. you want that imported into the draft yeah. in some form that's right and and so you have to as a as an instructor you know as a teacher you have to 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 create the opportunities for students to go back and, and really do that. So you have to really encourage them to start developing these, ha these habits of mind of taking note of what people said and dealing with it later. And so you create these instructions that help them do that. Um, I, I have to round up so many of the different features of the book. Um, the genre talk sections where we get mm. um, a view into what is the reflective essay, what is the informative essay or the article and so on. Um, one of the fantastic uh, features, the in-process uh, feature where we get to oh. see drafts being done in a sense right before my eyes. It, it reminded me of William Zinzer where he <laughs> puts up in the front of his book, I think it's on page 10, two pages of his 17th uh, typed out form with all kinds of uh, <laughs> handwritten changes again. Of yeah, student he's essays a wonderful of, guy. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. And uh, um, student essays and so on, project ideas. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I would like to come back though once more to the uh, peer review section and, and ask your opinion for someone also who has written about it and with so much experience in it. What is it, um, apart from the technology, that uh, peer review brings into the writing process? What have you seen that it, that it does for, for writers? Well, just that idea of getting getting a reaction from a potential reader. It's like trying it out, you know, before you actually put your contribution to the conversation out there, you know, publish your journal article or you share your, your blog post or whatever it's going to be, get some feedback from somebody else so that you're not missing things. You know, we, we build that mental model of what this document is accomplishing 
And then if we don't try it out, it's sort of like putting a survey out there and realizing too late after you've collected a few hundred responses that you didn't ask that question quite the right way. So you want to test things out. For me, that's a, a huge part of it. It's practice. It's getting some feedback. It's formative. It's formative in the sense that it helps you refine your, your message much more much more effectively than you would have if you just threw it out there because other people can see things that you can't. So I think that's the biggest part of it. I think the other part of it is it's a challenging concept for a lot of our students because they've been through really lousy experiences with peer review. So how do you as a teacher structure that peer review process so that the student who is providing the feedback isn't just saying, oh, that was nice or this doesn't work for me, but doesn't explain why. So you really have to structure that with clear questions that they can answer. And then one of the things I do as a teacher is always say, take on the role of an editor or a co-author and, and try to improve this. What, what role are you adopting here? How can you be a better collaborator by providing suggestions? So you can't simply say this doesn't work. You have to say, so perhaps you could do this to improve it. Those kinds of things are, are really important from a teaching point of view of helping students uh, really understand as reviewers that they have a responsibility and an opportunity to help student their classmates improve. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Also, the opportunity. I think the peer aspect of it, too, is when there is sort of a common commitment to, um, if we can put it in very blunt terms, the grade that you're going to get at the end of the course that is obviously going to be a measure of your writing, then you helping someone else out is you helping yourself in a way too, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep. And you, um, you end, yeah, go ahead. Uh, sorry, sorry. No, I was going to change topic. So please, yeah. Mm. If, you, if you wanted to say. No, it's fine. Okay. All right. Well, I wanted to just hit the end of the book. I mean, one of my favorite personal topics always is being questions of grammar and style. Uh-huh. Um, that's just that's just me. <laughs> it's not a yep. measure of their importance. So. <clears throat> but uh, what what I loved were um, how succinctly. I mean, this is really a measure of the writing of uh, of these textbooks. How succinctly you you summarize these sorts of things: punctuation, give direction, grammar, yeah. write skillfully style, write confidently. I mean, <laughs> if you had two words to describe these things, I think those were the two, right? I can't imagine what else you'd come up with. Um, what, what I loved was in the, um, and this is a really important issue, becomes important more and more as time passes and we gain more multimodal forms of, of publishing. Mm-hmm. So the crafting and the <clears throat> polishing that you talk about of your contribution in another chapter, for example, the drafting and designing of documents. It's always kind of blown me away how little care too many people take um, in, in, in the way that the document is then finally presented. You know, yes. for me, I've always, for me, I, and I suppose this is my draw to writing, it's always been a personal thing. It was, in a sense, almost like I was handing on a photo of myself younger or telling a really, you know, intimate story from my family when I handed over a document, even if it was just, you know, a research paper in a seminar. It was it was with that sort of care that I passed it on, and and I've experienced so many people, plenty of students and and other people who should know, administrators and so on, who just sort of flop a messy document in front of you, and you think, oh, yeah. I I think that's a it's it's always been important to me, and I think it's because when I was in high school, I started an underground newspaper, and we had to figure out layout, and then I wanted to become a small town newspaper editor, and I I started working on our 
or my campus newspaper. And over time, you know, as I became more and more involved in writing, I just realized that presentation is really important. Where do you place that image? Which image do you select? Do you use an image? And all of this stuff, I think, is just so important. The 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 affective part of a document is so important. The emotional impact that it has is just critical. And I think that we sometimes overlook that. We think, oh, I've got the information there. That's all, that's all that matters. How do you frame your contribution? How do you how do you highlight particular information? How do you call the reader's attention to the things that you really want them to see? How do you help them understand all this? This whole notion of framing an issue or or helping people pay attention to what you want them to pay attention to. And and for me, genre. Well, genre is, you know, what's the right choice for how to share this? But the design that comes along with genre, those design choices you make are so critical to the success of your document. And I think a lot of people just say, no, no, it's the words that matter. Well, yeah, the words absolutely matter. Without them, you're in trouble. But you need to emphasize and highlight and call attention to key parts of of what you've got there. Otherwise, it's just an unending sea of words and people tend to gloss over that. So how do you design a document to have an impact? I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, design is huge. I mean, essentially, it proves that, let's say, a research article in biology is not just a research article in biology. Clearly, the figures count, the tables count, Mm -hmm. the length of the captions, uh, where the figures are placed, as you say. Some of these questions in publishing may be taken over by an editor, not all of them, for sure. but. You can, as you say, right, it's it, it's the words that count. Yeah, it's the words that count. Where do you make the paragraph break? Um, mm-hmm. Where do you leave them off? Which word do you put in bold? Uh, the questions just go on, don't they? Yeah, but when you and when you sit there thinking like, how do I guide somebody through this document? Simple things like, what do I do? I use headings. Well, and if I use headings, how do I phrase them? Are they active headings? What what are they calling attention to? Do I want to use a sidebar? Do I want to? You know, sidebars are really important. It's this doesn't quite fit, but I really want to call attention to it. These this act of calling attention to things of framing your argument is is, is a critical part of design. And and it, you know, design is always embedded within that larger communication context. You don't do it to make it look good. You do it to make it look. To work effectively and you know sometimes it just doesn't make any sense to put a whole bunch of stuff in there you don't want to necessarily have a drop cap in something just because you think it looks good but you do make choices about what what it calls attention to and so go back to a drop cap what's the value of it well it indicates the start of a new section or a start of a new a new idea that you want to pay attention to and it'll draw the eye and so there's a whole lot of things that go on there you can talk to students for example about how what happens on websites. It used to be that images were super important on websites. And now the research suggests that people gloss over images. It's a real change from the reading habits that they had, say, 20 years ago, and that some of us still think are actually happening. So there's a lot going on with design and you, you know, helping students understand that is, is helpful, giving them the clue that this is something they should continue to pay attention to and should continue to study as they develop as writers is a better lesson. And, and I hope they take that away from the classes. Well, that's certainly a major takeaway from uh, the books is, is that, that awareness, that thinking on your own for sure. Um, well, Mike, uh, you've been very generous with your time. I, I do have one last question. Um, 
I, I, I fear, or perhaps there's a few listeners out there where we've said conversation a million times and we've been talking about text. And I, I made a point early on in our uh, talk today to bring the centrality of text to research and the university really front and center. And uh, you've used uh, really interesting expressions along the lines of writing to each other about their disciplinary uh, uh, subject matter, which if you put in speaking or talking, the sentence just makes as much sense. And mm-hmm. and I suppose where I'm going is uh, to, to leave us off. Uh, h- how would you sort of characterize or display the conversation metaphor in writing so that somebody could sort of just get it? I think the easiest thing to do, at least from an academic perspective, is to take a look at where you're making references to other sources. And so if a student comes in and they they haven't, for example, really cited any sources, you can take a look at that and you can model that and you can say, okay, so where did this idea come from? And is this your idea or is this somebody else's or is this elaborated enough? And so you can start talking about it from that point of view. And then you can start to show them articles that are published. Maybe there's a journalistic article and it's just got so-and-so said this or in an interview they revealed that or they said this at this event. Well, there's a way of referring to what people were doing and saying. Um, When you start looking at academic discourse, now you're starting to look at what kind of citations are they using and why are they using citations in the first place? And then you can start stepping back and even going into something like a citation database like the Web of Science, where you can start saying, well, let's take a look and let's see, this is an important article. Let's see what they're citing. Let's see who cites them. And so you start seeing this trail over time of people citing each other and 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 building on each other's work so i think for me that's the kind of stuff i do in a classroom where you sort of move from maybe not any citation or any reference to outside sources at all to starting to see the journalistic kind of style that's used the kind of things that's on social media um to taking a look at threaded discussions for example and then moving into the kind of more formal citation practices that we do and starting to explain how all that works so that's kind of the direction i typically would move in in a classroom but i think that that's The idea that everything builds on everything else is just a fundamental assumption I make, that there's very few things out there that are not source-based. Everything seems to be source-based. Heck, even my grocery lists are source-based. You know, so what do we need? You know, and 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 what what do you mean by get this? You know, which brand? <laughs> the, so, the source is the empty want? cover. The empty cover, yeah. right? <laughs> well, it's also it's also my wife telling me we yeah. need this, and it needs to be this kind, and you're going to find it here. So, oh, wives are the sources of so many things, aren't they? <laughs> they are. They are. In so many good ways. Yes, yes. So. Well, well, well. Thank you very much. Uh, that is Mike Palmquist, co-author together with Barbara Walraff of the books "Joining the Conversation: A Guide and Handbook for Writers" in its fourth edition, and "In Conversation: A Writer's Guidebook" in its second edition. And both these published by Bedford St. Martins. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Mike. Goodbye. Well, thank you very much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.